Hey, this is Stephen Trader. I produce the term podcast that you're about to listen to. I wanted to take a moment to just ask a very quick favor of you, the listener. Today is our 30th episode, and you know, Jimmy and Natalie are just such fantastic colleagues of mine. They're so smart and they're so much fun to work with on this show. And they really try so hard every week to put together the most informative and interesting episodes that they can. And, you know, every week they're reading through court transcripts, they're listening to oral arguments, they're dissecting the Law 360 news coverage to really cover, you know, everything from high-profile immigration and LGBTQ arguments to, well, let's face it, a way less significant but extremely fun phantom toilet flush. And so, you know, if you enjoy the episodes and you appreciate their effort, please just take a moment to leave us a written review wherever you listen to the show. We're on all the major podcast platforms, but, you know, take iTunes, for instance. If you leave us a written review, that gives us a little bit of a boost and, you know, gets us in, in front of potentially a larger audience. And that's ultimately what we want is for as many people to listen to the show as possible. So it only takes a couple of seconds. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the show and please enjoy the episode today. Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington, and joining me now from New York is Law360 editor-at-large Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Uh, We have finished up the historic teleconference session uh, before the court this week. Um, And now there's all these questions as to whether this is the last we've heard of of the justices uh, over phone. Um, You know, there's... There's no more arguments until October, and there's questions as to whether things will be back to normal by then. Well, I know that our our producer, Steve, is definitely not going to like not having access to the audio of the arguments, so hopefully they preserve some elements of this teleconference session if the world does indeed turn back to normal by then. And to end things out, it was definitely a busy week. Um, so we're going we're gonna to be covering a lot of ground uh, just in terms of what was before the court this week. Um, to start off, though, unfortunately, there was some sad news that came out on Tuesday that the transgender woman at the center of one of the court's three major uh, Title VII cases, Amy Stevens, passed away. Yeah, Stevens died at age 59 in her Detroit area home this week after years of battling kidney disease. And her death comes, you know, just weeks before the Supreme Court is set to decide, you know, whether her 2013 firing um, by a Michigan funeral home violated uh, federal civil rights law. Turning to the court this week, uh, you know, it was another full slate of arguments for the justices, six sessions over three days. Uh, We're going to chat about a few of the ones that really stood out to us. First up, uh, there was an interesting case argued on Monday coming out of Oklahoma regarding Native American land. Uh, The the case McGirt versus Oklahoma, you know, has issues of tribal sovereignty, uh, state versus federal jurisdiction, and a little bit of possible justice politicking um, at the center of it. Uh, Basically, there's this basic question of whether the Muskegee Creek Nation, um, whether their Oklahoma reservation exists and whether the state has authority to prosecute crimes that happen on the lands in question. Um, you know, and, and it's an important case because if 
the justices find in favor of the Creek Nation, um, or rather the McGirt, uh, you know, Jim C. McGirt, who is at the center of this um, and the lead plaintiff, if if they find um, in favor of him, it, it throws into question whether hundreds or more uh, state prosecutions are valid or whether they have to be retried. So when you say this case is about whether the tribe's reservation still exists, I understand there's a, a historical dispute about whether when you know Oklahoma was admitted to the Union, um, this tribal boundary was kind of dissolved, essentially. And this poses, like you said, like big jurisdictional questions, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so just to lay a, a bit of groundwork for, for listeners who might not be well-versed in, in tribal law, which is a pretty niche area here, you know, Congress establishes reservations, usually by this so-called fee patent to a tribe. Um, and there, there's this argument by the state that the Creeks lost their Indian country status, essentially, when that patent was lifted and the land was allotted to specific tribe members. Now, this happened right around the time, I believe, uh, Oklahoma became a state, so like, you know, early 1900s. Um, and, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, has raised some some concerns at argument, you know, that the Creeks have long maintained that they're not so-called reservation Indians. But then there's also, uh, this, you know, kind of letter of the law, the treaty was never really nullified of, you know, them having a, a reservation, or at least that's the argument, um, you know, coming out of the Creek Nation. Right. Isn't there like a doctrine basically that says that in order to disestablish, you know, uh, an Indian tribe's reservation, it has to kind of be explicit in, in, you know, some form of statute from Congress. And I guess the argument is that that never actually happened there, even though, um, you know, the allotments that you were just mentioning took place. So that therein lies the dispute. And like you said, it has, you know, spillover consequences for a lot of these um convictions that were secured by what they argue now was questionable questionable jurisdiction by the prosecutors on yeah. you know, prosecuting crimes that took place on what they consider to be Indian land. Yeah, exactly. And and not just for Oklahoma. This could, you know, this this case could raise some implications for other states where there are questions of, you know, sovereignty and tribal sovereignty and reservations. You know, these are you would think so many, uh, you know, hundreds of years after, you know, some of these deals happened, a lot of these would be kind of figured out. But no, I mean, like this is uh, as our, our senior reporter, Andrew Westney, w- would tell you, you know, these are some of the, 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 the major issues that are still routinely getting, you know, kind of unpicked and untangled uh, before the court, uh, before the courts across the country. Um, now, this case is, is uh, I think, a, a little interesting. Um, because yeah, I'm getting total deja vu about this whole issue because weren't <laughs> they just discussing this last term? What happened there? Yeah, so there's definitely some deja vu happening here because uh, there was another case last uh, year regarding another Creek Nation member, Patrick Dwayne Murphy, who was um, who was uh, basically seeking the same thing as McGirt is in this case. Um, you know, for McGirt, he's challenging a conviction over child sexual abuse. Murphy was challenging a murder conviction. And in in the Murphy case, though, uh, the justices didn't end up uh, making a ruling. And, and there's some thought um, as our, you know, 
Andrew Westnayer, reporter, uh, has covered, there's some thought that they're deadlocked 4-4 because Justice Gorsuch was recused from the Murphy case. Uh, He's not recused, though, from this case. And there's some thought that they they took up the McGirt case to basically break the deadlock um, and to make a final decision. So what did Justice Gorsuch have to say at oral arguments this week? So Justice Gorsuch, who has kind of a reputation for often leaning towards kind of tribal treaties, definitely seemed to be leaning, you know, on the side of the the Creek Nation in this one. Um, You know, the the, the court has this 1984 test called the Solemn Test uh, for basically establishing whether, you know, a tribe's are reservation or not and and he seemed to be leaning towards kind of the strict analysis of you know the congress you know didn't use kind of the typical language to dissolve the reservation way back in 1907 but even if gorsuch wasn't convinced that this was disestablished i understand that even some of the liberal justices were a little bit skeptical of whether um the tribe could could assert criminal jurisdiction over this area Yes, Justice Ginsburg and a few other justices did raise questions and concerns about there just being hundreds of state court convictions being thrown out if the case goes towards McGirt. That wasn't the only case this week where the justices really worried about the implications of their ruling. Um, I want to talk about the two blockbuster oral arguments that the Supreme Court had on Tuesday, and they involve uh, subpoenas uh, for President Trump's business <clears throat> and tax information. Now, there are two cases here, one of them, which is actually consolidated with another case, but I'll refer to it as just being one case. Uh, it involves uh, a subpoena from various House committees um, to more than one organization, Mazars, President Trump's longtime accounting firm, and uh, Capital One and Deutsche Bank. And those subpoenas uh, demand uh, President years worth of President Trump's uh, accounting and other financial information. Now, the second case um, actually comes from Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance, who has sent a grand jury subpoena to the Trump organization uh, demanding President Trump's tax information. Um, so these both spilled over at the Supreme Court on Tuesday in two separate arguments that were a really fascinating uh, discussion about separation of powers and, you know, the court's precedent going back to Nixon and Clinton. And it was just a constitutional law nerds, like absolute dream of a day. (laughs) All right. So uh, there is going to be a lot to unpack here. (laughs) So let's take the first case first, the one involving the House Oversight Committee. Lay out for us the the president's uh, lawyer's uh, arguments here. The president's lawyer, Patrick Strawbridge, uh, made the argument to the justices on Tuesday in the House case um, that there was no valid legislative reason um, for the House committees here uh, to serve up these very broad subpoenas um, to the president or to the president's like, you know, third parties, his accounting firm and his his banks demanding these records. And they basically just say they make a, you know, number of arguments that, you know, it's it's not a valid use of legislative power. um, It is going to burden the president, etc. And the justices reactions to those arguments predictably split um, along, you know, the familiar ideological lines there. So you had kind of the liberal justices, in particular, I'm thinking of Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who who are saying, you know, why aren't these valid reasons um, for the House committees to, to demand this information? But are you just... Dis- 
disputing that the stated purpose of the Intelligence Committee subpoena at issue, investigating efforts by foreign entities to influence the U.S. political process, um, and related to the financial records of, of that, that those were irrelevant to that purpose, and that's an illegitimate purpose by the investigative committee, by the Intelligence Committee? So that was Justice Sonia Sotomayor's um, feeling on the matter, but Justice Elena Kagan had a slightly different take on what she saw as a major separation of powers issue between this negotiation between the president um, and Congress. And what it seems to me you're asking us to do is to put a kind of 10-ton weight on the scales between the president and Congress, and essentially to make it impossible for Congress to perform oversight and to carry out its functions where the president is concerned. And you're quite right. So that was a pretty strong argument from Justice Kagan that, you know, the caution being kind of put in this position to to kind of, sh- you know, basically shield the president at, at essentially from oversight. Uh, what were you hearing from some of the more conservative justices? Yeah. So if the argument from the liberal justices was, you know, this is a valid use of oversight. Um, What you heard from the conservative justices was a lot of concern about what are the limits here to the House's position. So um, over and over again, you saw Justices Alito and Roberts um, and even Gorsuch, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, ask the House attorney, um, Doug Letter, uh, you know, what were the limits of this argument that as long as something is tied to a legislative purpose, you could demand these records from the president? I mean, the issue of like, you know, the president's personal health records came up. What if there was an argument to be made that that was um, necessary to have in order to enact some kind of health legislation or something along those lines? Justice Alito in particular was worried about these subpoenas being used for presidential harassment. Answer, But in your view, there is really no protection against the use of congressional subpoenas for the purpose of preventing the harassment of a president because the only requirement is that the subpoena be relevant to a conceivable legislative purpose, and you can't think of a single example of a subpoena that wouldn't meet that test. Now, it's totally unclear, you know, what the result of this case is going to be just from oral arguments. I mean, you had potential swing votes in there. I'm thinking in particular about uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, who at one point kind of seems to echo some of the, the 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 points made by his liberal colleagues, saying that you know maybe we should defer to the House um, about what it says are its own legislative needs and legislative purposes. Why isn't something that we should just take their word for it on? So moving on to the second case, which essentially covers uh, a lot of the same ground about accessing the president's financial records just from the DA's office versus the House Oversight Committee. Uh, You know, did you see a a lot of similarities or or were there some differences in how the justices might be lining up on that case? There were definitely some important differences in how the second case on Tuesday involving uh, the subpoena from the DA's office broke down. Um, And that's because the president's lawyer, uh, Jay Sekulow, in this case, had made kind of a broad argument Um, for immunity that a lot of the justices were a little bit skeptical of. So he was basically saying that uh, the president shouldn't have to answer a subpoena from, you know, a state grand jury like the one at issue here until he has left office. Um, And his argument was basically that if if you if the Supreme Court holds otherwise, then there's nothing to stop you know the 2,000 plus uh, district attorneys around the country from just harassing the president's 
uh, the president with uh, subpoenas. But like I said, um, there was a little bit of resistance to that argument by, I'm thinking in particular about Chief Justice Roberts, who kind of referred with some, uh, you know, resistance to some hostility to this idea of absolute immunity for the president. Um, And Justice Gorsuch even pointed out that you know, in the 1997 case, Clinton versus Jones, the court held that, you know, civil litigation could proceed against a sitting president. A president That was when, you know, Clinton was forced to sit, President Clinton was forced to sit for a deposition. And so he says, what's different about that? How do we avoid the conclusion that there the president wasn't subject to some special immunity, but here he is? Let, let me stop you there. Yes, yes. There, there, there they sought the deposition of the president while he was serving. Here, they're seeking records from third parties. But they're his records from third parties. And so you seem, I I get the sense that maybe the justices aren't going to bite on that, you know, that kind of broad argument about immunity. But that's not to say that Trump loses that case, because there's actually a narrower argument um, on which the justices can decide the case, and that's the one put forth um, by a U.S. Solicitor General, Noel Francisco, who also argued um, in Trump's defense uh, alongside Sekulow. And he said that, you know, while, you know, the president doesn't necessarily have this absolute immunity to these state grand jury subpoenas, um, prosecutors still need to show that there's a special need um, for this information. And he says that in this case, they're just, it, they just didn't make that showing about a special need. So Trump shouldn't have to comply with those subpoenas. So it sounds like we could see potentially very different outcomes in these two rather similar cases. Absolutely. And I expect a, you know, a, a frantic day when these rulings come down and people are trying to leaf through the parts of the opinions that people join and things like that. It sounds like this might be pretty complicated when it comes out, basically. And, and kind of the elephant in the room here, um, obviously, is that it's an election year. So if if the court does come out with its its opinion, it, it could it could have some serious implications just on on the results of the election, which I'm sure the, the court is not super happy about being put in that position. That's right. But those subpoena cases were not the only ones that the court heard this week with implications for the presidential election. Uh, In its last two arguments of the term, the court um, kind of weighed into the issue of faithless uh, presidential electors. These are people that vote for someone other than, you know, their party's nominee when it comes comes time to cast their ballot in the electoral college. Uh, But it had kind of some funny moments. It produced some funny moments uh, during the the um, oral argument uh, when the justices kind of speculated about what would happen if you kind of let them just go crazy and vote for whoever they wanted to. Your Honor, there are no limits in that voting by ballot so long as the ballot is for a person. The 12th Amendment says they must vote for a person. Uh, you can imagine, indeed, you don't well, have to imagine that it's not a giraffe. I mean, of course they have to vote for a person. Your Honor, Congress... I just love that that's the first animal that comes to to mind, a giraffe, which I would argue would make probably a good presidential candidate, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a, a strict no sh- a strict no shorties platform for sure. Um, <laughs> sorry, getting ahead of myself. Okay, let's move on to justice. <laughs> let's move on to justice Clarence Thomas, who had another hypothetical uh, candidate because the elector who had promised to vote for the winning candidate could suddenly say, you know, uh, I'm going to vote for Frodo Baggins. And that's, I really like Frodo Baggins. And you're saying under your system, 
you can't do anything about that. Your Honor, I, I think there is something to be done because that would be the vote for a non-person. Um, you know, so, Natalie, I just have to ask. If it comes down to uh, Mr. Giraffe versus uh, Frodo 2020, who are you going with? I think I'm going with, with the giraffe, to be quite honest. Yeah, Frodo just had like various <laughs> like lapses in character over the trilogy, I would say. You know, Sam Wise would make an excellent candidate, but Frodo, I don't know. I just kind of love that this is how the justices kind of, uh, you know, wrapped up their their telephonic sessions. I, I feel like this might be a sign that the quarantine's kind of getting to them, too. <laughs> it was a weird end to a weird couple of weeks at the court, for sure. Well, Jimmy, as always, though, this has been uh, great to kind of dissect what's been happening at the court this past week. Um you know, we're, we're heading into the big opinion session for, for the court. Uh, so I'm sure we'll be having lots to talk about, uh, including next week. Absolutely. And, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporter this week, Andrew Wesney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. Oh, and please write that review. <laughs>